Let's pray in particular about these next few minutes. God, first of all, this morning, before we pray about the message in particular and what word you have for us today, I want to pray for another church uh, somewhat nearby. I want to pray for Crosspoint Community Church, um, people that, we, that are dear to us, that we love dearly, um, who've gone to be part of another church, a new church in Rockwall. We are lifting them up this morning, Lord. We are delighted and celebrating with them um, the baptism of eight worshipers this morning. Thankful that our baptismal trough is in use this morning and that your glory is on display uh, as you are um, drawing people unto you. We're thankful for the work that you're about there. We're thankful for the leader, her leadership. Thankful for those that have gone to be part of it, that have have been, been stretched and called to lead and step out in ways that they hadn't imagined they could in the past. God, I'm thankful that you take the foolish things that confound the wise and you take the least likely to succeed to put your gospel on display. We enjoy how you're working through this church, this new church in Rockwall. Thankful for the opportunity to lift them up. Thankful for the opportunity to be part of the new work there. God, I want to pray in particular about how we spend these next few minutes. I'm thankful for this wonderfully balanced passage in Ephesians 2. I'm thankful that it really captures all the essential elements of the gospel. God, I pray for two things this morning. I pray that we will be equipped to share with others. And I pray that we will be delighted in what we're hearing that it will fuel worship in us and through us. I'm thankful for this good news from this passage, Lord. Guide us in these next few minutes. May we enjoy you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Last couple of weeks, we've been in a little short series in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And each Sunday, I've prepared you with imagining a terrible debt. Debt is not something we have to work real hard to imagine, so we know the feeling, that sort of oppressive feeling of this thing that's just hanging over this cloud that follows you everywhere you go, that's um, ominous feeling almost, the thing that oftentimes is hard to get out from under. I introduced you to a thought of imagining a debt that was so vast, so big, it's something that you inherited from your parents, that even little efforts that you might make to pay off that debt don't even pay off the interest on the debt. This morning, just to introduce the message, considering that terrible debt that we've inherited from our parents, I want want you to understand that that debt has been paid in full. We considered that last week. It's been paid in full by three wonderful verbs. We'll bump into those again briefly this morning. But this morning is going to be about asking and answering the question, why did God do this? What in the world would he have to gain from this? What what is his motive or are his motives in making sinners saints? Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Part one of this little series dealt with our terrible lot that came from those three verses. Our terrible lot that's a a situation, a terrible situation for the Gentile and the Jew alike, which encompasses all of us, all humankind, that we're in a terrible state of spiritual death and are due one thing, the wrath of a holy God. But God does something altogether surprising. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Last week in part two of this little series, we considered that he, being the subject of the passage, does three very important things. Massive, wonderful verbs. He takes spiritually dead people from verse 1 and people that are due eternal wrath from verse 3 and he makes them spiritually alive. He quickens us. He makes us alive together with Christ, quickening us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And the second verb, he raises us from death to life. And the third and probably the most shocking of them all, he actually seats us with the victor in the place of honor, in the place of glory. He puts us in a place of honor seated by the ruler to share in the victory as he then goes about the work of placing all things in subjection under this ruling victor's feet. And all three of these things that are achieved for Christ are achieved for us by our union with Christ by faith. What happens to him, surprisingly, happens to us by faith. His physical quickening was and is our spiritual quickening. His physical resurrection was and is our spiritual resurrection. His seating by faith and our union with him means our seating And all three of these things are already done. We're not talking about future possibilities or future things that are due you. These are already finished works for those who are united to him by faith. They are not things coming to you, but things that are already reckoned to you by faith. These last two sermons, I hope, have been identity building for you. Helping you see who you are by your union with Christ. I hope by this point, though, you've wondered why in the world God would do this. I hope as you've considered this massive debt that's been paid for you, I hope you've at least considered, what is this God up to? Have you at least been curious? The beauty in considering the question and researching the answer that comes beautifully from this passage 
is that not only will we find God's purpose in the work of salvation, but we will find your purpose in salvation. Man, I need purpose and meaning in life. We're going to get some of that this morning. Purpose and meaning. Three wonderful motives for making sinners saints comes out of this passage are three reasons he makes sinners saints. The first of those comes from verses 4 through 6, especially verse 4. The second of them comes from verse 7. And the third comes from verse 10. So let's look at the first of those three. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The first of these three things that God is up to, the first of these driving forces and making sinners saints, is his great love with which he loved us. The word here, the Greek word, is the word agape. The Greeks had four different words for love. Agape, eros, philia, and storge. And they each meant different things. And interestingly enough, there's no real version of like in there. We commonly use love for things we really like. In fact, I'm going to tell a story on Brad Cardwell. Didn't even ask his permission. He sent me a picture, a text of a pig that he shot with his beautiful Remington rifle laying there on top of it. This was just a couple weeks ago. I asked him, I said, man, where did you get that rifle? That's a beauty. He said, it's a Remington 270. I said, how do you like it? He said, I love it. (laughs) I said, you love it like you love Jesus and Christy? He said, more. (laughs) Now, he qualified it a moment later, and he said, but only when I'm hunting. We use like all the time. The Greeks were very precise about the word love. And in this case, the word love is the word agape. It's a love that seeks the highest good for the one loved. A love that seeks the highest good for the one loved. And thankfully, it's not a love that's merit-based. It's not dependent on whether the person deserves it or not. It's a surprising love in context here that's placed not on a neutral party. Think about this for a moment. This love that he's placed, this agape, is not placed on neutral parties. It's placed on party that's actually dead in their trespasses and sins. Other passages tell us that that deadness is equated with enmity with God. He's placed that love on his enemies, no less. It is a wonderful otherworldly love. And it's modified by a couple of words here. The first of those words is great. The second of the words is really isn't translated here in our ESV, but New American Standard, some other versions bring it out. It's his. First of all, great. His great love is nice contrast with his rich mercy. In other words, it's in great measure. It's in God-sized portions of mercy and love. And the word his that's in their original language that's brought out in some translations points toward God being the source of all real sacrificial agape type love. This love is so wonderful. This agape love is so wonderful that this love actually acted. His love was more than an emotion. It actually was an action. 
His love did not leave people dead in trespasses and sins. His love did not leave them as children of wrath, do his wrath. His love instead united them to Christ by faith so that what happened to Jesus happens to them. It's a wonderful, wonderful love. Now, each of these three things that we're going to draw out today are going to have a treasure connected to them. And this is the treasure connected to his love being the first motive in the work of salvation. Here's the treasure. His love is administered surgically. His love is administered surgically. First of all, it's administered surgically in means or method of delivery. Turn to John 3.16. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a couple other passages with you that are going to help bring out where I'm going with this love, this treasure thought on this first motive that God makes sinners saints because he loves us in Christ. I'm going to share a passage from 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, if you want to make a note about that, but I'd like for you to turn to John 3.16 to be ready to see this. As you're turning there, listen to this passage in 1 John. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. I'm going to read it again because I really want you to get this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. His love actually took on flesh and became something specific, something surgical. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Another very familiar passage is in Romans chapter 8, another wonderful passage on love. Stay there in John 3.16, though, because I want you to see something here in a moment. Those stickies are not cooperating here. Romans chapter 8, a beautiful passage on love. Verse 38 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His love was surgical in the person of Christ. Now, John 3.16, likely a very familiar passage for most people in this room. It was the first passage I learned, memorized as a young kid, and I got a package of peanut M&Ms as a result. Wonderful, wonderful passage and wonderful M&Ms. John 3.16, here's how the passage goes. You probably know it by memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, I have a little note down in the bottom of my ESV. It's not where I first discovered this, though. I first discovered what's actually being said here in the Holman Christian Standard. It's another version of the Bible. But look at the note down in the bottom of the page if you have an ESV. For this is how God loved the world. See, as a kid munching on those peanut M&Ms, my concept of God's love for us was that God's love so vast, God so loved the world, God had so much love for the world that he sent his only begotten son. What's actually being said here is God loved the world just so. He sent his only begotten son. God loved the world 
in this way. He sent his only begotten son. What I want you to see here is that God's love is surgical in means. He loved us in Christ. Christ is how he has loved us. Man, that can play out a million different ways. When you get a terrible medical report, when you lose a job, when you have a marriage come unglued, when you lose a friendship or a relationship, or you have the perception in some way that God has failed you, you can go back to a passage like this and realize that, no, he's already blessed us in Christ Jesus, period. He makes no promises about all those things, those earthly things that are great and important, that they will all go your way if you will only trust him. He's already loved us in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And these three mighty verbs behind the work of what Christ has done. He's already loved us strategically and surgically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He loved the world in Christ. He loved the world surgically in means. The second treasure that comes from this passage, go back to Ephesians chapter 1 is he loved us in means surgically in the person of Jesus and he loved us specifically in target. His love had a target. His love was not this gooey substance that he just poured all over the whole world that he hoped somebody might bite on, somebody might take the bait, like this cosmic bait waiting to see who's gonna bite. His love actually was very strategic and very particular. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, these spiritual blessing, blessings that we met just a few weeks ago. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And now here's the first of that list of spiritual blessings. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. His love was and is surgical in means in the person of Christ and is surgical in target. His love was and is placed on those that he is predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It says it right here, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In our context, what for us for years has been such a sticky topic that I've been nervous about even bringing up from the pulpit. Now we trump it because that is the application of his love. It was and is surgical on his people because his love has teeth. His love has an effect. It's not this gooey substance that he hopes somebody might eat on, bite on. It's not cosmic bait. He's not running for office waiting to see who's going to vote for him. His love has teeth. And man, his love saves. His love, his particular love, was in the person of Christ, and his love was set on a particular people. He's done that from the beginning. You see his love set on Abram. Look back, you see his love set on Noah, even. If you want to understand how his love for the world can play out in a particular sense, you can think back to the story of Noah and read the story of Noah through John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he set his love on a dude named Noah and he gave him some instructions about how to build an ark. And whoever's united to Noah by believing in what he's saying is going to be on that ark and is going to survive a big old flood. 
It's a long version of John 3.16, but it's the same story played out. His love for the world particularly applied, and those united to Noah by faith survive. His love is particular, and it's effective, and it's set on the clearly undeserving and unlikely dead folks we met in Ephesians 2, verse 1. Since we were just in John, if you have to have a finger back over there in John 3.16, turn over a couple pages to John chapter 5. I only have you turning a few pages, a few, few places this morning, but this is a little story that's just too beautiful for us not to enjoy. It's such a wonderful picture of his particular love in the means and the target. John chapter 5 is one of the seven signs presented in the book of John for the purpose of belief. John is a gospel tract. It's these seven signs are presented over the course of the book, and they are written so that they may believe and we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. And here's one of those signs in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, these little pools were a common place to park your blind, lame, and paralyzed family members over the course of the workday when you went about your work there in Jerusalem or the surrounding area. You might bring your kid or brother or parent, whoever it might be, and you'd park them right there. And the reason they did that is because they believed that the angels would come and stir the water up. And at the certain moment, if you were the first one to get into the water, you would actually be healed of that blindness or that paralysis or that lameness. So here lay, according to this passage, a multitude of invalids. If you want to incorporate the story or the image that I developed last week of Jesus diving down into the bottom of the ocean to drag us off the ocean floor, just to incorporate this vision of the ocean floor being littered with bodies, being littered with a multitude of dead. Now, in these roofed colonnades next to these pools lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, it says he saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Well, the sick man being dead in his trespasses and sins, if we wanted to develop that imagery some more, the sick man can't even answer with the right answer. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another one steps down before me. I'm lame, I'm sick, I might be blind. Oh, and oh, by the way, I'm slow. I can't even get in there fast enough to be healed. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. He said to him, Lazarus, come forth. But God being dead, but God be, made them alive together with Christ. It's a beautiful picture of this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Being dead in his trespasses and sins, God makes him alive together with, with Christ. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. His love was surgical in means, and his love was surgical 
in Target. The multitudes lay around these pools, and Jesus walked up to this man. He walked up to this man, and he knew his story, and he healed this man. He loved him surgically with himself, and he loved him particularly among all others. That imagery of the laying at the bottom of the ocean, the multitudes that are laying down there, if you really want to be ravaged, if you want to be scandalized by the good news, considering that these three verbs have been done for you, made alive together with Christ, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ, now consider the picture that the, the, the ocean floor is littered with bodies, and that you among all people were dragged and drawn from the depths and saved for his purposes. I feel like I should throw in here a passage that just, it's fitting. I think it's important for you to conceptualize why we're saying this, what we're saying here. Somebody that may be hearing this for the first time might be thinking, man, these guys must really think a lot of themselves to be chosen. Here's how it goes for the chosen in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. In other words, you were dumb. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, like an invalid that lay 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Man, if you want to understand his love, you have to understand that he was particular about it in means and in target, and he didn't place his love on the best and the brightest. He placed his love on the least likely to succeed. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us with him. Why did he make sinners saints? Because he loves us in and with Christ. The second thing, the second motive of the work of salvation, go back to Ephesians, comes from verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The second reason or the second motive, the second thing that he's up to that we can draw from this passage is because of, of his shown grace toward us in Christ. It comes right here from this passage. A wonderful henna clause. This word so that in Greek is the word henna. It's a purpose clause. And we should pay attention when we see words like in order that or for the purpose of or in this case so that. We can understand the motive of these three mighty verbs and the motive of God's work in making sinners saints so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The word grace. The word grace means acting kindness. And the word grace, if you want to define it from this passage, you could define it as those three mighty verbs. His great love that he has for us compelled grace that played out in three verbs, making us alive, quickening us, raising us, and seating us. Grace is acting kindness, and you see it beautifully playing out in this passage. You also see grace mentioned in the verses 
in the verse before, or a couple of verses before verse 7, and in the verse after. In verse 5, he says he's made us alive together with Christ. And oh, by the way, it's by grace you've been saved. And then in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And then in verse 7, in the coming ages, he wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This concept of grace is something that we should apprehend. It's because of his grace that he made sinners saints and that he saved us. And the word saved here that's used in verse 5 and 8 is an important word. It's implied there in our our verse, verse 7 that we're looking especially at right now. This word saved, I want to take a moment and just define it. The word saved was used for being delivered from some sort of danger. And it was used beautifully, I found this out after the fact, in cases such as drowning at sea. So that illustration actually is especially fitting. It was used as saving from disease, and it was used to mean saving from eternal separation from God. And it's in this third sense that salvation is being applied right here. Salvation then in this sense, by definition, is to be united with your Creator. Salvation is not defined here as going to a place where you'll someday be able to see Granny. There's nothing wrong with those sort of hopes, but that's not the good news of salvation. The good news of salvation is also not that you're going to go to some place where you're not going to burn in hell forever. The good news of salvation is that we're not going to be eternally separated from our Creator anymore, but we're going to be with God. That's the carrot of salvation from this passage. That we're going to be with God forevermore. It's a nice diagnostic for you too. Because if you have no interest in being with God, you don't enjoy being with God, if you don't enjoy Him here and now because that salvation is already done and accomplished according to this passage, it is a perfect tense verb meaning that it is already done with lasting effects. If you're not enjoying that here and now, then that is a terrible, maybe scary diagnostic for you. But let it be the diagnostic that it should be. Because if you're not enjoying him right now, you may not understand salvation at all, and you may not even be saved. Hear me say that. If you're not enjoying God now, that's the good news of salvation, in any way, in any measure, then you may not even know him at all. This word saved, what grace accomplishes, is a beautiful perfect tense verb. It's done with lasting effects. And we can enjoy there that what that tells us is that God's love by his grace saves sinners and that very same grace keeps sinners. His grace saves sinners and that very same grace keeps believers safe from God's wrath and death's sting forevermore. Man, that's some good news. Now, for the treasure... Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. I told you about the henna clause of this passage, the purpose clause of this passage. It takes us to a word that I've I've, I've sort of skimmed over. I just read it, and now I'm going to deal with it. The word show. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's the treasure of this motive. That God is going to show his grace toward us 
and demonstrate his grace toward us and exhibit his great grace toward us in the coming ages. And those coming ages are like now. That God did these three mighty verbs where love compels grace, that's the acting kindness that does those three verbs for the purpose of displaying it, showing it, exhibiting it, demonstrating it in the coming ages like as in now. Like today, November 22nd, 2015. Those ages that you're speaking of are there, are, are began at the moment of writing and they continue forever as his work of salvation of making sinners saints would be an eternity-long demonstration or show of his acting kindness. And God has been up to that for a long time. The Exodus, one of the pivotal stories in our Bible, and I think one that helps us make sense in some ways of salvation, of him saving a new Israel, has a beautiful developing picture here. Listen to this passage from Exodus chapter 6. I know I have you in 29, but I'm going to read a, a few passages very quickly, and then we're going to end on, verse, on chapter 29. But listen to Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them, but by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. By this point, they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, or they've been in Egypt 400 years. And at least for a sizable portion of that time, they've been slaves about the work of brick making. I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He's making promises to Moses of what he's going to do with his people. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you, you people, shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God has a motive in salvation, and it's so that we will know him as the big D deliverer, so that he will get glory as deliverer. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out. From under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give you to Abraham, or swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I'm doing this, delivering you, so that you will know that I am God. It's a theme throughout the Exodus, and it's not just for Israel. Listen to these passages. Exodus chapter 7. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God is about the work of making himself known as the deliverer to his people and to the world. Chapter 7, verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. 
chapter 8, verse 10. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there was no one like the Lord our God. There's a theme of knowing God as God and the big D deliverer. Chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. God is up to something in the work of salvation and so the Egyptians will know that he's God and so the Jews will know that he's God. In chapter 9, verse 29, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 are for the Jews. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, and that I may show these signs of mine among them. Show and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God is about the work of really, frankly, showing off. I know that's a heavy, cumbersome, and maybe hard to follow grouping of passages, but that's what he's doing in the Exodus. He's showing off his mighty power. He's showing his love, particularly applied on the people of God. And he's showing that he is the big D deliverer. I have you over there in chapter 29. Let's finish with that passage. Chapter 29, verse 44, I will consecrate. He's given the instructions for the tabernacle. By this point, Pharaoh and his armies have drowned in the Red Sea. But here in chapter 29, verse 44, he's talking about the consecration of the priests and the consecration of the tent of meeting and the altar. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He wants to be known as the big D deliverer. It's over and over and over and over again through the book of Exodus. Forty years later, It's apparently still a theme. Moses from Mount Nebo writes the book of Deuteronomy. And I would like for you to see this passage. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want you to see this passage. If you're an underliner, this would be a great passage to underline because it gets at the motive of salvation with old Israel and can help us make sense of his salvation with new Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses, after leading the nation of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, they've seen the plagues, they've seen the exodus, they've seen the Red Sea swallow up Pharaoh and his army. They've been to Sinai, they've been disobedient, they've wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, become a 40-year funeral procession. And here they are at Mount Nebo, about to go into the promised land. And here in chapter 7, verse 6, It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, particularly, to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, out of all the peoples that are lying at the bottom of the ocean, he's chosen particularly you, Israel. 
He set His love on you. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. You weren't the shiniest of pennies. You weren't the most likely to succeed, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. His acting kindness is on display and has been on display in and among his people for ages. And it is in and among us, his new Israel, in the work of salvation. He rescued us among all people, from slavery to sin and death, so that in the coming ages, His grace would be exhibited in you. It's beautiful. The first motive of salvation is because of His love. The second reason that He made sinners saints is to exhibit His grace. And that leads us right into the third. It comes from verse 10. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Go back there if you haven't, if you haven't put a, left a finger in there, then go find it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I want you to see it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The first motive of salvation was love. The second motive of salvation, the reason to making sinners saints, is to put his Grace on display, and the third motive is because we are His workmanship, because He created us in Christ for good works. This word workmanship was a, is a delightful word. In Greek, it was used of a craftsman's product. It was also used for you artists out here as your masterpiece. It was used to describe the thing that you put your hand to with canvas and and paint are with saw and wood. It's a beautiful contrast to our dead works that are pointed out in verse 9. This is a, your salvation is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. In contrast, as our works are bankrupt, he has a work of art. His work makes works of art of the likes of us. Man. His work actually makes something of dead, guilty, sick folk. It's fitting that he was a carpenter, don't you think? I wonder if they had any sort of concept of using reclaimed wood or repurposing, but I would expect that if it did exist back then, that Jesus was an art, a master of that, using reclaimed wood and an expert at repurposing, taking wood that's bound for fire, and a fireplace, and instead making it a trophy of His grace. For that's what we are. That's what the church is. A walking, living, in the, in the ages to come being now, banner and billboard of His grace and mercy applied to the likes of us. One of the things, here's the treasure for this third thing, that He created us in Christ for good works. The treasure is that our work fits in after his salvation. 
That's a treasure for me because I sometimes want to get them out of order and think that my works somehow contribute to my salvation. And then when I see how bankrupt they are and how measly they are and how inconsistent they are, then I might wonder if I'm saved. You can enjoy this morning that that word saved, remember, is aorist tense, is in done deal. Done. Those three verbs are already done, past tense. And here these works then are just responding works that we've been called to not saving works, thankfully. Our work fits in after his salvation work, for the saving work is finished. Remember, he's seated. Remember his last words from the cross, it is finished. The work of salvation was finished right then and there. And remember, we're seated with him, so your work of salvation is done. If you're trusting Christ by faith, you don't have no saving work to do. The only work that you have to do is to respond. The responding work is fitting and ongoing, and it's in a response to His work of making sinners saints. Now, one of the beauties of this passage is the way it's worded. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just as we've been predestined and foreknown and chosen and ordained to be his, he's also predestined and pre-known and ordained events for you to then go walk in, not to work in. If it were work in, then that might imply that there is actually some work for you yet to do. But frankly, that absence of the word there is something that we should enjoy. It said, instead it says we go walk in them, meaning that those are works that he's already done and designed in ages past. And we just go walk in them. And ultimately, here's the beauty, here's the treasure of that. He's still the worker in that. He ordained it, he planned it, he predestined it, and we just go walk in it. So even our works after new life turn out to be his after all. Man, that's the only way I can sleep at night. That helps me exhale, thinking that it's all his work. Now, his purpose comes from this passage, and it's delightful. Three of them. The reason he made sinners saints is because of his love, and his love fueled a grace that he wants to put on display in the ages to come. And third, so that we would be walking in good works that he's prepared in advance. For us to do. Some of the earliest things that our children learn in this church in their little Bible studies that they go to is a little children's catechism that we work through. Some of our teenagers, some of the first things that they ever learned at church were the first couple of questions. One is who God, who made you? Well, God made me. Well, why did God make you? He made me for his own glory. Instilling that into our children at a young age and building that and equipping that into you at this age will do a lot for your view of salvation because I think the contemporary problem in Christianity is seeing ourselves at the center of salvation. Like it's all about us. Like a bunch of Christian baby Hueys just sitting around, just gimme, gimme, gimme. I'm at the center of all things and some things have been built into us that way where people are trying to tell you and teach you you're a special little snowflake and God has a special plan for your life. Who's at the center of that salvation story? You are. Take those away from our children instead of give them something of substance that says, who made you? Well, God made me. Why did he make you? For his own glory. He's at the center of salvation. It's about his glory. 
If you're at the center of salvation, you're not going to come to God as a worshiper. You're going to come to God as a consumer saying, give me. Not how can you use me. Give me. Your interaction with God will likely be more about what he should do and needs to do for you. On the other hand, if you view his glory at the center of salvation and his fame and his renown at the center of salvation and the heart of the story, then you'll see yourself in a better way as an instrument and trophy of his grace where he's getting the glory. You'll see yourself as one who God chose, one who God called, one who God quickened, raised, seated, and repurposed for his glory so that in the coming ages as in now and in the current neighborhoods, in the current cubicles, in the current workspaces, in the current circle of friends, folks will see your good works and your transformed life and say, to God be the glory. That's the aim of the whole thing. That's the aim. When I ask you a question as we prepare for our supper, question to think about. I shouldn't have said supper because I don't want anybody to shuffle. I don't want anybody to move. I want you to listen to this question. If you've heard all or part of these last three weeks, do you realize that you've been equipped for something? You've been equipped for something. First of all, you've been equipped for worship so that you can understand how salvation went about for you and for the church, for the people sitting around you. But you've also been equipped so that you can then share with others what it means to be saved in the workspace or the cubicle or the family dinner or the Thanksgiving get-together or whatever might unfold where family and friends may not understand what it means to be saved. It's very common for people to believe that salvation means just doing, being better than you are bad. And man, that's common to think, but that's wrong. This passage would nicely equip somebody who's thinking so errantly. And you could do it in love and share with them, man, we've been equipped from this passage. Can I show you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10? It's so balanced. All the ingredients are there. It tells our story and it tells his and it even tells why. Do you realize you've been equipped for that? Do you realize the tragedy too if if this terminates on you? If it's just about you and helping you feel better about salvation but it terminates on you, you've missed the point. You've been equipped to share this with others. Let's pray and thank him for what he's shown us in these last three weeks. God, I'm so thankful for this passage. I'm thankful for the balance. I'm thankful for all the wonderful ingredients that are in there. I'm thankful that you have equipped us with something that is profound, something that's potent, something that's even better than our personal testimony, something that tells the story of what you've done with dead, spiritually dead folk. God, I'm thankful for the passage. I'm thankful for the beauty of it. I'm thankful that we've been equipped with it. And even deeper than that, I'm thankful for what it tells us. God, I'm thankful that you took folks that are blind, lame, and paralyzed. I'm thankful that you took folks that are three days dead and decaying. I'm thankful that you took folks that have been in slavery for hundreds of years. 
I'm thankful you took folks that are dead in our trespasses and sins and who are by nature children of wrath. And then you loved us even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. And that your love fueled a grace that acted. I'm thankful that your grace is not just some sort of feeling, but it is an acting kindness that involves three wonderful verbs of being quickened with Jesus and being raised with Jesus and being seated with Jesus. God, I pray as a result of that that we will be faithful trophies of grace. That we'll be attentive, equipped, responsive, moving, speaking, loving, good work, walking people as a result of what you've done for us in Christ. God, I'm thankful too for the timeliness of this. I just can't imagine that there aren't going to be some days next week as we sit with somebody, a friend, a relative, or a neighbor who doesn't know you. I'm thankful that we're equipped with some seriously good news. I pray for those people right now that we will have the chance to talk with. I pray for those people that we know and care about and love and are burdened for. God, I pray that you will open the eyes of their hearts, that you will dive down to the bottom of the ocean, that you will drag them up to the top and that you will revive them and resuscitate them. And if we have to be, if we are a means in that that you use as we share this story and these passages and what they, what they mean, then so be it. That would be a delightful opportunity and treat for us to participate in your saving work. God, I beg for that. I pray for that personally too, for an opportunity next week to share with someone who doesn't know you. You've given us some good equipment. You've given us some good news. We love you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.